This morning we have Nathaniel and Walter helping to lead us in the reading of God's word. Please stand for the lesson of the Gospels from Mark 1, 14 through 34. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, they saw James, the son of Zebedee, and Jesus and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with, with the hired servants and followed him. When they got to Capernaum, they immediately, on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? We know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him, and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And all at, and at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon with Andrew, James, and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him, him about her. He came and took her by the hand, lifted her up, and her fever left her. She began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought all of him who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city gathered together at the door. He healed so many who were sick with various diseases, cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demon to speak because they knew him. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Uh, children, I know that kids love stories. Adults, we, love sto- we all love stories. Uh, but what are some of your favorite stories? You just throw it out there. What are some of your most beloved stories that you've either heard before, had read to you, something like that? Nobody likes stories here? Lord of the Rings. The Iliad. Little boy after my own heart. Not Chronicles of Narnia. Ugly Duckling. Harry, po- Harry Potter. Love Harry Potter. Romilly. Lord of the Rings. Yes, love that. Kindergartner. Kick six. Wonderful story. True story. <laughs> that's actually a great point because that's what I want to bring up today. About how, many, how so many of the stories that we love aren't true. In a sense, they're not real. Right? They're not a reflection of reality. But don't you sometimes wish that those stories were true? Like someone said Harry Potter. People love the Harry Potter story. Are you 11 yet? 
No, you're not yet 11. And what that means, if you're familiar with Harry Potter, is what age do students go to Hogwarts, the school in Harry Potter? 11. But there's a possibility that even if you don't grow up in the wizarding world, if you're just a regular muggle, you might receive a letter in the mail when you turn 11. Now, I never... I like, was introduced to Harry Potter books after I was 11. I was, I think, already in high school. But I can imagine little Daniel, if I had been younger than 11, I would have been se- secretly wishing on my 11th birthday, am I going to get that letter in the mail? A part of us wants these stories to be true. And that's what we're going to talk about today. You know, one of my favorite authors, and someone mentioned Chronicles of Narnia, is C.S. Lewis. I imagine many of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis. But you might not know that C.S. Lewis was not a Christian for a large part of his life. And he only became a Christian later on in, in his adult life. And one of the ways in which his friends helped him to see the beauty of Christianity was this idea that C.S. Lewis loved all these stories. He loved these stories like Greek mythology about gods and goddesses. And he wished they were true. He talks about this experience that he had reading a poem by Longfellow. And it's about this Norse god. Norse mythology is like, if you think of, um, what's his name, Thor? This is part of Norse mythology. But Thor has a half-brother, and his name is Beldar. I'm sorry, Balder. And C.S. Lewis reads this poem that uh, reads this. I heard a voice that cried, Balder the beautiful, he is dead. He is dead. And C.S. Lewis, he describes this as like this almost um, like mystical experience that he has reading this poem and being so moved by it, but at the same time lamenting the fact that this isn't real. He writes this, I knew nothing about Balder, but instantly I was lifted into this huge region of the northern sky. I desired with almost sickening intensity something never to be described. And then, as in other examples of joy, I find myself at the very same moment already falling out of that desire and wishing I were back in it. You see, in reading that poem about that Norse god, C.S. Lewis, he was lifted up to this alternate reality. But then he came back down to earth and he was disappointed. Disappointed that what he wanted to be true was not true. And the reason I bring that up is as we look at the gospel of Mark this morning, kids, what I want you to know is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a story that's too good to be true. But it is true. The gospel is too good to be true, yet out of all the stories, it is the one story that is true. And once you understand that, it'll change your entire life. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. The gospel of Mark, the ultimate too good to be true story that is in fact true. So please pray with me. God, we thank you for the hearts that you've given us, the minds that you've given us, that we can read all these wonderful stories and understand that they're just reflections of the one true and great story of a God who became a man, of a man who lived and died, not because of anything that he had done, but to save a people for himself. And we thank you, Lord, that that story is true, that it really happened, that the reason we gather every week here at church is to rejoice in the great story that you have written and are continuing to write and have allowed us to participate in that. And so as you do that, Lord, we pray that your spirit would come among us, that you would guide us into the truth and that the truth would set us free for your glory and our good. In Christ's name we pray. 
Amen. Well, last week, if you were here, Russell did an amazing job. Thank you so much for uh, all the kind words that you've shared to Russell. Uh, and if we had, Russell and I talked about it, if there's only one complaint about what everything is said, it's like, it's too positive. It's like, he's like, everybody just telling me how great it was, but no one is actually giving me that helpful, constructive criticism. Like, what's one thing? So don't barrage him after the service, but what you've been hiding inside, just, let, just tell him, hey, you know what? You did a great job, but this one thing. Um, but no, seriously, I'm very thankful for him and uh, look forward to many opportunities that you will have both here in, in our church and as you move forward to preach God's word uh, to his people. So thank you for that. But what Russell shared last week is that even though Jesus is the Son of God, status has this authority, he's the one to whom the entire Old Testament points to, even though Jesus is the Son of God, yet he submits himself. He identifies with sinful humanity and submits himself to baptism. And it's because he submits himself that God the Father opens up the heavens, he looks down and says, you are my beloved Son, In this man, I am well pleased. What God is doing there is he's giving Jesus this ultimate stamp of approval. Saying, this is the one. Listen to him. Out of all the voices of the world, out of anybody that you could turn to, trust to, hope in, this is the person that you should be listening to. So it's incumbent upon us to find out what Jesus says. And the passage that we, that Nathaniel and Walter read for us this morning, it tells us the very first words that Jesus says in the entire Gospel of Mark. And it really, it kind of um, functions as this summary statement for the entire Gospel. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Jesus says this in Mark chapter 1, 14 through 15. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. He proclaimed the Gospel of God and he said, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And believe the gospel. Now, if, if you've been in church for any amount of time, you might find this passage confusing. And why I say that is because we typically associate the gospel with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right? And so if I were to go up to any one of you and say, what is the gospel? You know, can you explain the gospel to me maybe in a few short sentences, 30 seconds? I'm assuming that most of us would have something in there about Jesus died for our sins. And he was raised again. But here, it says that Jesus already is proclaiming the gospel. He's telling people to already believe in the gospel. Before he's lived, before he's died, before he's been raised again, before he's promised that he's going to come again. So what then is the gospel that Jesus is calling us, calling his audience, his listeners to believe? I think it can be summed up in three words, so really easy to remember. Jesus is Lord. The very beginning of his earthly ministry, the gospel that Jesus is proclaiming is, there's a kingdom that is coming. Right? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. There's this kingdom that is coming, and I am the Lord of that kingdom. That's the message that he wants people to hear at that time. And so this morning, I'd like to focus on two aspects of Jesus' life and ministry that are signs of the coming kingdom and indicators to us that he is who he says he is, that show he is the Lord of God's kingdom. And the first is his preaching and his teaching, and the second is his healing and casting out of demons. So first, we're going to talk about how Jesus 
preaches and teaches to show that he is the author, authorized interpreter of God's law. And then secondly, we're going to look at how Jesus heals and casts out demons in order to show that he's the authority over all things, the physical and the spiritual world, the heavens and the earth. So first, Jesus as the ultimate authoritative teacher. Verse 21 says this, They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue, and he was teaching. Verse 22, They were astonished at his teaching. Why? Because he taught them as one who has authority, and not as their scribes. Now, we can't say with any certainty who these scribes are. Um, There's a lot of different ideas out there, but we don't know exactly who the scribes are are that are being referred to here in this passage. But what we can know is that whoever these scribes are, there's an essential difference between Jesus' teaching and the scribes' teaching. And what is that difference? Jesus teaches with authority. And now we don't know what he's saying in his teaching. Mark doesn't tell us. Right? All he says is he's teaching with authority. And so it suggests that what's really important is not what Jesus is teaching specifically on this Sabbath day. It's not what Jesus teaches. It's how he teaches it and how it's different, and how it's no, like nobody else. And so like I said, we don't know who the scribes are, but I have a guess. I think it's the, later on in rabbinic literature, this is uh, Jewish rabbis, they refer to these figures called the sages, or the wise ones. And so I'm going to use them interchangeably, the sages and the scribes. That's my best guess about who Jesus is referring to here. But a lot of the sages' teachings is uh, compiled in this thing called the Talmud. Has anybody ever heard of it? The Talmud. This is one of the kind of core documents of the Jewish faith. Um, and so if you go way, way, way back to the time of Moses, rabbinic Jews, rabbis around the time of Jesus and later on, they believe that God gave Moses two laws. God gave Moses the written law, or the written Torah, which is what we have in the Bible, but God gave Moses another law, and that is the oral Torah, or uh, the spoken Torah. And these are traditions that rabbinic Jews believe were passed all the way from the time of Moses through the elders, through the leaders of Israel, all the way down to the time of sages. And a lot of them are reflections on biblical law. And I bring that all that up because that helps us to understand what it means that scribes didn't teach with authorities. Because what these sages did was they didn't tell you what something meant in the Bible. They only told you what other people had said about it. And I'll give you an example. This comes from the Babylonian Talmud. This comes from a section called Shabbat 34b. Anybody read it before? No? Shabbat 34b. It's a great passage to read. Shabbat is the Hebrew word meaning Sabbath. You can kind of hear that that word in there, Shabbat, Sabbath. Sabbath is the day of rest for Jewish people. And if you're familiar with Jewish people, they count the beginning of the day at sunset. A day begins at sunset and ends at the following sunset. Um, And so there's all these commands in the Jewish law. What are you supposed to do at night and what are you supposed to do at day, in the daytime? And it's very important to know what those things are. Because if God commands you to do something in the day, you should do your best to do it during the day. But these people thought, well, what about twilight? What about the time in between the day and the night? What are we supposed to do then? And so I'm going to read a passage from Shabbat 34b that answers this question, or tries to answer this question. The sages, that is the scribes, they taught a baraita, which is, um, it's like oral tradition, which discusses the range of problems that arise with regard to the twilight period. 
Twilight is a period of uncertainty. It is uncertain whether it consists of both day and night. It's uncertain whether it's completely day, and it's uncertain whether it's completely night. Therefore, the sages impose the stringencies of both days upon it. If there's a stringency that applies on either of the days, one is obligated to adhere to it during the twilight period. Basically saying, we don't know when twilight is, it's uncertain, so you better do everything that you're obligated to do during the day and the night during the twilight period. But then they go on. Nevertheless, the definition of twilight is uncertain, and what is twilight? And this is one rabbi's opinion. For when the sun sets, as long as the eastern face of the sky is reddened by the light of the sun, if the lower segment of the sky has lost its color, and the upper segment of the sky has not lost its color, that is the twilight period. If the upper segment has lost its color, and its color equals that of the lower one, it is night. That is the statement of Rabbi Yehuda. So that's his opinion on what twilight is. But Rabbi Nehemiah says something different. He says, the duration of the twilight period is the time it takes for a person to walk half a mil. And a mil is a rabbinic distance measurement. It's like six-tenths of a mile after the sun sets. So the sun starts setting. Twilight is basically like 12 minutes. Rabbi Yose says twilight does not last for a quantifiable period of time. Rather, it's like the blink of an eye. This night enters, that day leaves, and it's impossible to calculate it due to its brevity. So here you have three opinions of three rabbis in the tradition, and what's the answer? There's no answer. That's the point. The rabbis can't give you an answer. They can only tell you what other people have said about it and perhaps offer a new opinion. The meaning is intended to be discovered by an interpreter listening into the dialogue of all the sages and tradition of the past. No one has any authority. There's a constant appeal to tradition, what has been said before, without any clear resolution. So when everyone's astonished at Jesus' teaching, that he teaches them not as a scribe, not just telling you what other people have said, but as one who has authority, what do you think that means? We see it not here in Mark, but we'll skip over the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus gives his famous Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is actually Jesus' interpretation of the Old Testament law. And so most of what he says goes something like this. He'll introduce Old Testament law by saying something like, you've heard it said. And when he's saying, you have heard it said, he's referring to an Old Old Testament passage. For example, Matthew 5, 21. You have heard it said, you shall not commit murder. And anyone who does will be liable to judgment. Then what does he say? Does he give the opinions of Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Nehemiah, and Rabbi Yose? No. What does he say? He says, but I say to you. I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus does not appeal to any other authority outside of himself. Because he is the ultimate authority on what the scripture means and teaches. And what it is pointing to. He doesn't teach like the scribes. And that's the point that Mark is trying to make. He is someone completely different. He's not simply contributing to the dialogue. He's ending it. He's showing you what it means, what it was always pointing to. And he does that by pointing to himself. So first, Jesus shows his authority in his teaching and his preaching. And then secondly, now we're going to look at Jesus showing his authority 
in the way that he heals and casts out demons. Verse 23 of Mark chapter 1 says this, Immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. He cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so they questioned among themselves, What is this? On the one hand, you have a new teaching with authority. And he even commands the unclean spirits, and they obey him. It's crazy. Like, I'll be the first to admit, I don't know what to do with these demon possession passages. It's like, out of everything in the New Testament, it's the hardest for me to wrap my head around what is even going on here. And like, how do, how do I incorporate these passages into my understanding of reality? You know, I think of questions like, is demon possession something that only occurs in like less modern, less developed places in the world where they have this more cultural sense of darkness and spiritual forces of evil that like we're just blind to? Or is demon possession like far more common here, modern day America, than we realize? Like, is that it? Have we been fooled into thinking that this is not something that we as 21st century modern day American Christians deal with? Or are the terms that we use like addiction or neuroses, mental disorders, are those simply our way of talking about the same phenomena that the Bible describes as demon possession? I think those are all really good questions. I don't even know, I don't know the answers to them. The other day, PJ's reading through the Gospel of Mark, and she says something to me like, this just doesn't seem real. Right? This seems like fantasy. It's like, this is so far removed from our everyday experience that we have no, like, guide rails even to understand what's going on. People possessed by demons running up to Jesus, it's like they're not even running away from him. They're running to Jesus. They're declaring, speaking to Jesus, that you are the Holy One of God, and Jesus turns around, says a simple word, and casts them out. It's like, what is going on? It's so far removed from our common, everyday experience of life here. But I think there's a way in which we can kind of try our best to understand those similar types of experiences. Because demon possession is something that a normal person can't have control over. And all of us do experience times in our life, particularly with our physical bodies, of things that we can't control. Right? Even though we don't like to believe it, even with all our technical and medical advances, we are as much subject to illness, sickness, the decay of our bodies just getting old as they were in first century Israel, and maybe even work just as susceptible to demon possession. You know, I think we're blessed, I was thinking about this, and we're blessed with having this world-class cancer treatment nearby at MD Anderson in Houston. You might have heard of it before. Maybe you, you've been there, received treatment. Maybe you know people who have. People will come from all over the world, literally, upend their entire lives to go to MD Anderson. And Why? 
10% greater chance of survival, maybe 20. If I were to tell you, you could go to MD Anderson and you would have a 5% better chance of being healed, would you go? 1% chance better? I think a lot of us would. Can you imagine what it would be like then if you heard about a man? Not, not 1%, not 5%, 10, guaranteed that if you were to go to him and all you had to do to be healed from your cancer, your Alzheimer's, your autoimmune disease, all you had to do was to go to this man and to let him touch you or let him see you, turn to you and say, be healed. What would you think? Yeah? Would you believe that? That's crazy. That's a fantasy world. Right? That's Harry Potter. Yet that's exactly what this is and that's the point. It's not that people back then were more, um, saw this all the time. What I'm trying to communicate is it's just as crazy for the people back then what Jesus is doing as it is for us to read about it today. And that's why they're astonished. That's why everybody is coming in. It says the whole town came into Jesus because they had no other hope except for him. And I don't know the nature of demonic possession. We could talk about it. We can kind of debate or give our own thoughts. And I, I don't, like I said, I don't have many answers. I don't know when or where or how often or why it might occur today. I don't know why there seems to be an increase in demonic activity around the time of Jesus' life. It just seems like all the demons came out during Jesus' life. And maybe it's like the final battle, the last battle, right? Chronicles of Narnia, where all the demons are trying to come out. Satan is marshalling all his forces because he knows this is the pivotal moment. Maybe that's it. There's a lot of things I don't know, but in spite, despite all those things I don't know, what is clear from Scripture, what clear from Mark, is that in light of who Jesus is, everything that the demons do is not enough. There's nothing that they can do to overcome Jesus, because Jesus has complete authority over all matters, both physical and spiritual. His casting out of demons is a sign of his coming kingdom. See, Jesus doesn't eliminate evil as he much exercises his authority over it. He's beginning to repel the forces of darkness to indicate that their time, that time of that kingdom is done, and I'm bringing in a new kingdom, God's kingdom. And Mark wants to show us that this man, Jesus, is like no one else. No one else can bring God's kingdom. Jesus is not one of a number of scribes or teachers. He's not one of a number of wonder workers, people going around healing people. Jesus is the only one. And the reason he does all these things is to show that the kingdom of God is coming, and the only way that you can ever be a part of this kingdom is by coming to him. Which brings us to the second part of Jesus' statement in Mark chapter 1, 14 to 15, verse 15. It says this, In light of who Jesus is, what does Jesus call you to do? Repent. And believe the gospel. Do we know what repentance is? I feel like repentance is one of those very churchy words. You don't hear the word repentance outside the church. But even though I think it's used a lot in the church, I think sometimes, or frequently, it might be used wrongly, or at least not in the way that I would typically think of it. You see, we think of repentance as turning away from sin and turning toward God, and I'm not saying that's wrong. I wouldn't disagree with it. 
But I think what Jesus is calling us toward when he says repentance is something far more deeper than that, far more transformational in our lives. So I would define repentance as nothing less than transferring your loyalty and your allegiance to an entirely different kingdom, an entirely different way of life, different perspective. It's a change of citizenship. As the Bible tells us, you are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. It's humbly acknowledging who you are and whose you are, that is, to whom you belong. In Colossians 1, chapter 13, verse 14, Paul puts this in an amazing way. He says this, He, that is God, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. You see, the Bible is very clear. You belong to either one of two kingdoms. You either belong to the domain of darkness, the kingdom of darkness, or you belong to the kingdom of Christ. Repentance, then, is renouncing the domain of darkness and instead walking in the light of Christ's kingdom, seeking his kingdom first and his righteousness. I love the way one scholar puts it. He says this, Repentance is not only the way into the kingdom, but it's the way of the kingdom. Repentance is not only the way into the kingdom, which is true, you have to repent in order to come into the kingdom, but it's also the way of the kingdom. Which means repentance is more than just saying something like the sinner's prayer. If you're familiar with that, Lord, I admit that I'm a sinner. I believe in Jesus and I commit my life to you. That is repentance. But it's not all that repentance encompasses. Repentance is a way of life a continual reorienting of the desires and directions of my heart toward the kingdom of God. So if you're like me, we have a time every week for confession of sin during our service. I think it's very important. But I think our conception of what confession is might be too overly influenced by some sort of confessional with a priest. So if you're like me, I'm just, okay, close my eyes, confess my sin, and start thinking of what are some specific sins that I might have committed this past week. I'm like racking my brain, feeling all the pressure because I know in about 10 seconds the confession is going to be over and like 75% of the time I haven't even thought of anything. It's like, well, I guess I'm forgiven. I know I did something wrong. But is that what repentance is? Repentance then is an awareness that I actually can't see the totality of my sin. That's why I have a problem with confession. Not because I'm less sinful but because my heart is so oriented away from the kingdom of God that I don't even realize how blinded I am to it repentance is a constant awareness of the ways in which I'm so enmeshed by the structures of this present age I'm often blind to how it affects me and dictates my thoughts my desires my actions my aspirations for example Repentance is not just the fact that I admit that I'm greedy or maybe I'm anxious about money. That's like a symptom. Repentance is being aware that I am fundamentally broken in the way that I view money. And it's contrary to the kingdom of God. I don't know what money is. I don't know what it's for. I don't know how it's to be used. And the way that expresses itself is through greed or anxiety, lack of trust, But repentance is knowing that I'm actually operating with respect to money by the domain of darkness, by the kingdom of this world, by how the world views money, 
rather than being transformed into a kingdom of God perspective on what money is. Or, it's not just that I consume pornography, which is a sin, but that my understanding of beauty, pleasure, the purpose of my body, what sexual desire and fulfillment it really points to and is for, that's broken and is contrary to the kingdom of God. Right? We confess particular sins, but a true spirit of repentance recognizes that underlying those sins is a heart orientation that is directed away from the kingdom of God and toward the kingdom of this world, or really the kingdom of myself. It's not just that I get angry with my children or my spouse or my family, but the way that I understand my relationship with others the rights that I believe I have in those relationships, the demands that I put on others, those are contrary to the kingdom of God. And those are just a few examples, but it's everything. Do you see the difference? Repentance is not just acknowledging specific sins, but seeing how those concrete sins are actually reflective of a deeper way in which I am shaped by Satan's kingdom and not God's kingdom. But that's only the first part. Because if that's all there was, there would be no gospel. That's not good news. But the good news is that even though that is true of me, that if you're in Christ, that doesn't define you. That you, your membership has actually already been transferred. That even though we are tempted to live by the ways of this world, that Jesus, through his life, his death, and resurrection, has actually already transferred us into his kingdom and brought us into his eternal light. And so a couple of weeks ago, I introduced what our main goal is as we work through the Gospel of Mark. Y'all remember what it is? To see Jesus as he is. To see Jesus as he is presented to us in the Gospel of Mark. And Scripture promises us that as we see him, God will change us to be more like him. And this morning, I'd like to introduce for us a secondary goal. Secondary, not because it's less important, but because it's sequential. It comes after the first goal. So we... See Jesus as he is. Look at the Gospel of Mark. See Jesus. And secondly, follow him. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. This is one of the, the, the climactic sections in the middle of the book of Mark. says this, Calling to the crowd with his disciples, he said to him, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Mark says, I have presented to you this man, Jesus. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. In these two things are encapsulated the entirety of our Christian faith. To see Jesus as he is and to follow him. And to help one another in doing so. If you see Jesus as he is, and what does Mark, who does Mark say he is? He's the son of God. He's equal with the father. He's the supreme teacher. He doesn't teach us like the scribes. He has authority. He has authority over the physical world. He heals He has authority over the spiritual world and the forces of darkness. This man, this man, he uses his power, his status, his authority. And he uses these things to do things like to serve, to suffer, to die, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In order that you might be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And that story sounds too too good to be true. But the wonderful, beautiful, amazing part of the gospel that this is the true story. It is the one true story that all other stories ultimately point to. 
It did really happen. And if you repent, if you acknowledge and admit that you have not lived with Christ as your ultimate authority in all things, and if you believe in the gospel that the Son of God became the crucified Messiah for you, then you will belong now and forever to the kingdom of God's beloved Son, and you will enjoy God's presence with you, with Christ, forever. Amen. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8 says this, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much how you've rescued us. can't think of a better word to what you have done other than rescue because we had no hope on our own, no chance for survival. And actually, the things that we were doing were contributing to our destruction. Yet you, in your tender grace and mercy, sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to rescue us from the domain of darkness to freely offer us redemption and forgiveness of our sins through his death and resurrection in order that we might be a part of your kingdom. I love how your church, our church, is this little expression of your kingdom. May we, in the way that we love and treat one another, the way that we serve one another and humbly submit to one another, reflect the values of your kingdom in which we follow after our Lord and Savior, the example for us, who did not consider him worthy, himself worthy, but instead humbled himself to the point of obedience, even to the death on a cross. Help us to be more and more like your son, Jesus, as you give us a vision of who he is, that we might see him as he is. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.